I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This episode of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 tier and above supporters of Parallax Views on patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And those supporters get a producer's credit shoutout on each and every edition of the show. So producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Chance, Justin, Nick W., and The Mere Project, M-E-E-R. Thank you again to all of those $10 tier and above supporters on my Patreon page. You can join them at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It's those producers credit supporters that can really help this show keep going, and their support is very much appreciated. Feel responsible for what happened to the Sandy Hook families. Yes, I killed the children. But beyond that, I'm no. I mean, I went in that school, I pulled a gun out, and I shot every one of them myself. I mean, I, I'm, 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 I'm guilty. Truth. No. But I mean, no, no. Let's just. Do I feel responsible that someone on on that played shoot 'em up video games on a bunch of drugs went and killed a bunch of kids, and then the internet questioned it? And I covered that. No, I don't feel responsible, and I don't apologize anymore. I'm done. I don't apologize. I killed the kids. Was there a definitive? I, no, I killed him. I killed him. You didn't kill him. No, I did. No, you didn't. No, everybody said no. No, I killed him. I killed him. I already admit it. I did it. I killed him. I'm the bad guy. I'm the devil. Get rid of the First Amendment. We'll be one other topics. I don't think. I killed him. First Amendment killed him. Second, get rid of the Second Amendment. Get rid of the First Amendment. They're bad. They killed the kids too. George Washington killed them. Jesus killed them. The whole, we should rename the whole planet Sandy Hook. Everything, it should be holidays. We should bow five times a day to New Haven, Connecticut for the kids that died. Every American's to blame. Every gun owner's to blame. I'm to blame. We are all guilty to Bloomberg and Soros. Turn our guns in, turn our guns in. I know, I get it, I killed them. I killed them, I killed them. I, I know, I killed them. So I'm done talking about it. I Can we talk about the trial at all? There's nothing to talk about. Let me tell you, I don't know if I can do this interview right now. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. What you just heard was the pathetic, and hopefully made all the more pathetic, by the choice soundtrack playing in the background. Meltdown of Texas-based Donald Trump-supporting, conspiratorially-minded radio host Alex Jones of InfoWars. 
Said meltdown came in the wake of the verdict reached in the lawsuit between Alex Jones and parents of the Sandy Hook school shooting victims. Thanks to that verdict, Jones has been ordered to pay a hefty sum in the tens of millions of dollars to the aforementioned parents. On this edition of the program, we're going to be discussing Alex Jones, his rise and his fall, and what may have contributed to his growth over the years, with a special focus on how the failings of the journalistic ecosystem may have contributed to Jones's success. Joining us to do that is returning guest, editor-in-chief and CEO of Who, What, Why, Russ Baker, author of Family of Secrets, a book about the Bush family dynasty that actually led to Russ Baker appearing on Alex Jones's radio program some years ago. So without any further ado, let's get right to it with Russ Baker. Welcome back to Parallax Views, a guest that I always enjoy speaking with, uh, Russ Baker of Who, What, Why, and also uh, the Substack, Going Deep with Russ Baker. How are you doing? Doing great. Thank you. So, Russ, you recently uh, have written a little bit about Alex Jones, uh, particularly a piece uh, entitled uh, Who Made Alex Jones? And uh, you actually have some experience uh, with Jones. So, you know, let's talk about uh, how Alex Jones first came on your radar. Uh, yeah, I mean, this goes back uh, about 10 years, more than 10 years, probably 13 years. Uh, I was only vaguely aware of him. Um, sounded kooky to me. <laughs> um, but at the same time, I understood that he had a uh, an audience and a growing audience and a lot of people like to listen to him, watch him for a variety of reasons. Uh, probably some uh, uh, found value in it. Probably some found entertainment value uh, in it, uh, even if they dismissed uh, much of what he said. My own experience was that uh, I had published a book, which I was promised uh, was a major blockbuster. It was going to be we were told by all kinds of major media that was going to be given an enormous platform. The revelations in my book, Family of Secrets, about two generations of a presidential family and the astounding things I discovered about them that had never come out, uh, uh, almost guaranteed that this was an important work that would be of great interest to the public. Uh, my publisher, which was a well-respected uh, mainstream publisher, was very excited about it. And they had uh, gotten uh, advance uh, signups, you might say, from all sorts of major media brands saying, wow, this is great. Uh, we're definitely going to review it positively. Uh, we want to have uh, Baker on our shows and so forth. And then somehow, inexplicably, one after another, they all started canceling. Uh, to this day, I can't say for sure how that works exactly. Uh, I don't think 
all of these shows know each other and they're all talking to each other, but somebody somewhere up the line made a calculation that the magnitude of the revelations in the book were such in comparison to what their own outlets had been telling their audiences that they simply didn't know how to handle it. I mean, I think that's probably the best explanation. Um, uh, it also contains a very serious um, suggestive facts around former presidents and uh, major historical traumas like the assassination of John F. Kennedy, Watergate and so on, uh, new information that had not come out before. And so I think that the calculation was simply, this is too hot to handle. We don't know what to do with this. Um, and, and I think to be fair, and I've worked in establishment media organizations, the there is a particular bar for what is, uh, you know, what you think you can sort of publish without a ton of bricks coming down on your own head. And I think that's what we're looking at. They just say, you know what, I just, <laughs> I can't give this guy a platform, even if I think he's serious, which I think they all did, and that I had a long time track record and, uh, you know, credibility, but it was just too big. And so you could probably imagine um, if somebody suddenly had something about any major icon and it was huge, and I mean really huge. Uh, it would just be hard to get it out there. Um, you know, I just whatever. You know, use your imagination. Just take uh, any any major figure, any whether it's a former president, uh, the Pope. Uh, you know, anybody at that level. How do you suddenly say to people, "Hey, you know, <laughs> there's something else about this person you don't know," and it's it's pretty nefarious. I mean, how do you even do that story? I mean, those stories just basically are not done. They're really not done. There's no way to do them. And so that is why I ended up leaving establishment media and going my own way uh, and then starting Who, What, Why, a nonprofit, independent, uh, non-commercial news source to have a place where people could publish serious journalism, serious investigative reporting and actually get it out there. Uh, but when when Family of Secrets, having been promised this tremendous uh, uh, attention by the major news brand, suddenly didn't get it, uh, we were sort of scrambling and sort of trying to figure out, well, what do you do? At which point I was told, you know, let's just get you out there wherever we can. Uh, and that led through circuitously to my ending up being on Alex Jones's show uh, sometime in the spring of 2009. So it, it sounds like, uh, in some ways, Family of Secrets uh, kind of got um, shunted off in a way um, similar to, say, like Gary Webb's Dark Alliance. Yeah, I mean, I'm hardly alone. There are untold journalists and authors. I mean, listen, the reality is anybody can publish a book these days. So just because somebody published a book doesn't automatically mean that they're entitled to any attention. Uh, and the, the numbers are just against that. I mean, there's only going to be a small number of books that are going to get a lot of attention. But I think that if the, uh, if the work is produced by a person with credentials, if the work is important, if it seems to be well done and well documented, 
that then puts it in a very different category. And there are uh, dozens, scores, hundreds of serious journalists uh, who couldn't get their own books any publicity. And I make that point, as you know, uh, in my last Substack, hearing from another uh, credentialed author who had had a past track record of getting a lot of coverage. And then when he went after a particular topic, suddenly he was persona non grata. So yeah, Gary Webb, I think, is another example of that, for sure. So when when you first got in contact with uh, Jones's producers, uh, what was that experience like? Uh, it sounds like from what you write in the initial article uh, that they were kind of secretive. Um, you know, I, I guess Jones and paranoia are, are things that go together there. You know, Infowars sounds like a, a sort of paranoid outlet. Uh, so was it kind of a what, what was the actual experience like? Um, this it sounds like Jones is quite the character. Well, I mean, I just happened to be uh, have gotten an invitation uh, to uh, come and talk about my book at a bookstore in Austin, Texas. And so I made my way out there. C-SPAN was sending a camera crew to cover it. That was our first big break, you might say, uh, you know, uh, book TV, which is um you know, as an audience, uh, that was our first sort of breakthrough. And so there I was going to Austin. I gave my talk. Uh, and after my talk was over at the bookstore, I think it was afterwards, uh, somebody said to me, hey, you know, uh, would you like to appear on Alex Jones? He's here in Austin. And uh, I know somebody who works there. Uh, maybe I get you on there. And I remember hesitating and saying, well, I don't know if that's really the kind of place I want to be on. But I also remember talking to publicists who said, look, you, you can't really choose. I mean, you know, if, if I were to get invited on Fox News, uh, you know, chat with Sean Hannity, obviously I'm going to I'm going to do it. I mean, I think, uh, uh, you know, you have Joe Biden goes on some of those shows and probably Trump a little bit went on some shows of supposedly uh, non-sympathetic media. Uh, so that's what you do. And so I said, well, I had a little bit of a feeling of dread. I was wondering what I was getting myself into, but I said, well, okay. And you have to remember, by the way, back in 2009, and this is really, I think, the crux of my of my column, is that Alex Jones in 2009 was not the Alex Jones uh, uh, that we saw in a courtroom recently. And that's very, very important. Not, not to interrupt you, but I, I want to uh, hone in on that point, because I do think Jones was uh, a very different kind of beast at that point uh, because I, I listened to Alex Jones and in InfoWars uh, when I was like a teenager, not because I always agreed with him, but because, you know, I had become very skeptical of, uh, you know, the establishment, as some people would call it, especially in the wake of the Iraq war. And I think the Iraq war really um, made people more skeptical of the system, so to speak. And I think a lot of people started listening uh, to InfoWars around that time, just because Alex was going after uh, the sort of problems of the Iraq war and the war on terror. So I, I do think it had a, a different kind of appeal back then. And he was covering some real issues along with some, you know, kookery. Well, that's right. And so I think the idea was this is you know, largely entertainment with um, uh, with sort of the promise of hearing forbidden topics. And uh, yeah, I mean, serious things were forbidden. Um, 
I was one of the early people to raise doubts about the Iraq war. And I, I think I put links in my column to some of my early pieces where the media, all media, you know, left, right and center were rushing to sort of endorse this invasion as being necessary. Uh, and we never really did get a good story of everyone's culpability, their lack of due diligence in questioning uh, something that they should have seen looked to be based on an agenda. So uh, yeah, I mean, that's right. Alex Jones would have people on. Uh, he would talk about things like the Iraq war. And when I went on there, you know, I actually asked somebody, what are his politics? You know, they were like, I don't really know. And some people think he's, you know, an anarchist. Some people think he's sort of from the left. Some think he's from the right. He eventually uh, chose what side of the bed to lie on later on when he, uh, became so associated with Trump and the the Proud Boys and everything. But way back in 2009, it was none of that, as far as I recall. Uh, and so, yeah, he was a, a place where people as yourself, a lot of young people liked it. It just was a kind of a counterculture, uh, sort of a free zone where all kinds of fascinating things were being discussed. So what was your experience like um, with Alex Jones? Like when you got ushered into the the studio uh, and, and sat down and talked to him. Uh, what, what were your general impressions? Um, was there anything you sort of felt, hey, I, I, I sort of see where this guy's coming from. He seems uh, rational on a lot of things. And then were there other points where maybe you felt uh, there's certain things that I don't like him, him uh, saying right now? Yeah, well, I first thing I remember is that it was a little tricky as to ascertain his location because it was a closely guarded secret. It ended up being it was in some like a strip mall and there was an unmarked door. And then you went in there and there were, I think, a fair number of people in there. A lot of them sort of looked like, you know, uh, disaffected young people. I would say it had that kind of Austin uh, look. Um, and um, I get ushered in pretty quickly into the studio and there he is putting me on live. As I recall it, I was kind of staggered by that, how fast that happened. It's not normally uh, the case, I don't think, but um, uh, uh, he had a copy of my book in his hand and maybe we'd given it to him. I don't know. But first thing he said was, I haven't read this book, but I've, I've heard good things about it. So I guess he'd already heard through the grapevine about the book. And because he hadn't read it, he asked me questions, but also began stating his own uh, knowledge or experience regarding the Bush family, CIA, and some of the other things in there. And, you know, it wasn't a conversation exactly that I would have wanted to be, that you would have had with somebody who'd been able to spend the time reading a nearly 600-page book, but it actually wasn't bad. And uh, in my Substack, we actually link to some video. You can watch me in there just trying to kind of you know, remain temperate and and say what I've got to say. I didn't want to endorse uh, some of the things he was saying. Uh, I didn't really want to endorse any of that. I just wanted to be able to explain what my book was about and uh, get the word out to his audience. It sounds like he could be, I, I mean, back when I listened, he could be a pit bull at times, uh, sort of like, you know, wanting to get his sort of word in edgewise. Uh, but it sounds like you were able to, uh, you know, say what you wanted to say uh, about family of secrets. Um, I, I want to get more into why you think Jones may have went in the direction he went, but 
was there anything else about the experience of, of sort of uh, conversing with Alex Jones and being interviewed on Infowars uh, that you think is worthwhile to speak about um, in this conversation we're having right now? Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, he definitely was a character, you know, because he already had that voice, you know, like, I think the voice became even more that way over the years. Uh, the the graphics were a little wacky, you know, it's a, not just uh, InfoWars, but what was the other one? Prison Planet. I never did understand exactly what this difference. You'd say InfoWars, Prison Planet, you know, and, and um, I seem to recall... Don't hold me to this. I seem to recall that when could already notice that his ads, you know, who was advertising there, that it was very much the kind of stuff you see on a lot of these alarmist things, you know, it was sort of, you know, invest in precious metals, uh, you know, maybe, uh, you know, how to build your own bomb shelter and can your own foods. You know, so had a kind of a survivalist, um, uh, you know, probably, you know, gun owner, uh, uh, don't trust the system. You know, I'm I'm not a fan, to put it mildly, of that kind of a worldview. To me, it is excessively paranoid. Uh, but uh, yeah, so I got a sense of that. Um, and yeah, he was a little, uh, as you said, you know, wanting to get his word in on <laughs> on everything. And I'd say, yeah, well, and then I would just kind of continue with what I had to say. So I the real takeaway there for me was just that. Um, he seemed, you know, he was pleasant to me, seemed to be a nice enough guy. He seemed to be interested up to a point in hearing what I had to say. Uh, he was willing to give me a platform, which, you know, Meet the Press was willing to give me a platform and then wasn't willing. And, you know, PBS and NPR and, you know, all these places were willing to give me one and then and then yanked it out. And and he, you know, he said, come on. And 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 they he aired it right away. So, uh, you know, that that got the word out. And and as you said, you know, you, you listened to it. So I don't know how you found out about the book, but a lot of perfectly decent people uh, heard about the book from that show or from people who watched the show or maybe got the book after watching the show. And then somebody else saw the book and maybe it was a relative who came from a different perspective, but said, Oh, that looks interesting. Mind if I take a look at it? So this is what we do. We go wherever we could go. Um, the, the, the real striking thing about him is just how, far he uh he fell and you know i i think i'm trying to remember did i get other invitations to go on there but i i certainly remember making a decision some years later okay this is really kind of uh this is bad what this fellow is doing and you know while i i do appreciate having a platform there are more and more places i'm not going to go on i stopped going on rt uh the uh, russian channel which also originally was a place you could see uh, some interesting, thoughtful, well-credentialed folks sometimes saying things that didn't comport with what the U.S. government was putting out and where they couldn't necessarily get a platform on major commercial American media. Uh, and 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 that was good for a while. And then after a while, I noticed that they um, didn't seem to want to let me say anything critical of Russia or Putin. And I thought, well, you know, this isn't so good either. And at some point I just stopped returning their calls as well. So that's what you do. You know, you, you see where these places are headed. And by the way, I, I mean, I, Jones was headed somewhere eventually, but, uh, and, and of course, uh, Sandy Hook, which was his downfall, I guess we could say, and, 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 and a really horrendous to me, just a horrendous, uh, I, I'd say a crime on his part to uh to to convince people that an event which clearly happened had not happened 
uh, and and to uh, malign and 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 really damage these grieving families. I mean, it's completely uh, unforgivable. Um, and he stuck to it for so long. I mean, he started doing that right after uh, the event. And right, all you know, this stuff I, about like crisis actors and things yeah, like that. You yeah, you know, listen, listen. I mean, it's very difficult what I do. So I'd like to talk about that for a few minutes. So what I do is I look at anything. And I try to ascertain the facts. Now, when you do that, you are already in the crosshairs of the establishment because that's not welcome. It wasn't welcome with Iraq. It wasn't welcome with the assassinations of JFK, RFK, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X. It was never welcome to question anything. How did Alex, how did uh, 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 Epstein die uh, when he was in a, in a, in a non-suicide, uh, in a suicide pre prevention situation. How did he die? That, even asking that was not welcome. And so I, as a journalist, I just say, well, hey, folks, we are not doing journalism here. Uh, JG, we're not doing journalism here because if we're not open to asking questions about anything and everything. And some people say, well, you know, do you look at, uh, you know, Joe Biden's son or something? Well, yes, I do. Um, I didn't I, I wasn't I didn't find anything uh, that was huge that hadn't been reported. Uh, and in fact, I would say in some senses they gave the so-called liberal media gave out gave uh, gave Biden kind of a harder time than they gave some of the folks on the other side. So this gets into a, a an issue I wanted to talk about with you, which is, um, you know, in, in the article, you talk about how uh, Alex Jones would actually talk about like real issues and was knowledgeable about certain real issues like, um, you know, the malfeasance of tobacco companies or, you know, the history, the sordid history of things like CIA's MKUltra experiments. Uh, but he ends up, he, he sprinkles that kind of real stuff in with this kind of um, conspiratorial worldview where there's almost like a, a supernatural power at the head of it, you know, uh, almost like he believes in some demonic uh, conspiracy, right? But what's interesting is he's able to sprinkle the more uh, legitimate stuff in there. And I think that gets at the crux of your article, because in a way, what you're saying is that, you know, when the media or, or journalists um, in the in the establishment, the quote unquote establishment, fail to cover these very real issues and uh, very real malfeasant uh, activities, you know, someone like Alex Jones can come up, come along and uh, start exploiting these issues and then use it to, you know, get into greater and greater lunacy and push, um, you know, more noxious views over time. Oh, absolutely. And and uh, by the way, if you look at, uh, you know, when Jones was raising issues about legitimate issues about, say, Hunter Biden, I mean, what kind of issues was he raising around the Trump family? And the answer was he, he wasn't. Uh, he wasn't looking at the relationships with the Saudis or we could go on and on and on. But if, if you really are upset about uh, nepotism uh, and uh, self-dealing, uh, you know, objectively, uh, there's always some, I think, with presidential families. But whatever you saw in the way of uh, self-dealing that you saw, let's say, with the Biden family or something like that, you saw just as much or much more on the other side. And really, you know, he would have had to uh, have acknowledged that, but he couldn't because 
whatever the demographics of his audience were, that that seemed to be the direction they wanted him to go. Yeah, that that's something I think you allude to at the end of the article uh, where you talk about Alex Jones as, you know, a brand, uh, you know, th this sort of product of um, the failures of establishment media, but also uh, he's he's almost a product of, of the demographics uh, that he's catering to. So he has to sort of abide by their uh, sort of wants, you know, with what they want to hear. Yeah. And, you know, listen, I understand it. I mean, a lot of the people who who liked him and maybe still like him, because I assume there are people he still has a show, uh, is that um, they're coming from a, 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 a visceral place. They feel that, you know, the country has gone crazy and there's all this permissiveness and uh, regular people are at risk from the crazies. I mean, that's really the, the pitch. And, you know, we are the solid folks. We're the ones who, you know, are doing God's mission. You get into a whole other story about the religious piece of this, uh, which I think is totally irrational also. But, uh, you know, and, and then, you know, I, I get notes from people who say, you know, why don't you like Trump? You and he are on the same side. They say, oh, my God, we are most certainly not on the same side. I mean, I've researched him for many, many years. To me, he he is, uh, in fact, a, a totally self-serving uh, man with absolutely no none of the skills or temperament to be any kind of a leader or take any interest in the public good at all. So to say that we have anything in common, I think, is 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 just really uh, beyond the pale. But, uh, you know, getting back to your point about that kind of supernatural thing, that's all part of the irrationality. People are looking for somebody to blame. And it's exciting if there's a cabal. You know, it's kind of exciting if, if it's all is revealed. And I do think this goes very much along with um, irrational religious beliefs, too, which is, you know, there's a forces of good and forces of evil. And that's the way everything works. None of this is remotely plausible, has nothing to do with any. Um, uh, evidentiary material that we've seen about how things actually affect us personally, uh, or 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 the world. Uh, but but you know it, you know if you can believe that um, you know if you get down on your knees that somebody is going to then give you what you want, I suppose you would also believe that. Uh, uh, George Soros. And by the way, those are uh, common bogeymen on his show. George Soros. I mean. Uh, you know, George Soros is is a businessman, but he's also a philanthropist. And as far as I could tell, um, he most of the work that he's done and most of the work that his organizations have done are genuine uh, philanthropy. I mean, I've traveled all over the world and I've been to their offices and I've seen the kind of programs they're doing uh, on all sorts of different levels in some very, very tough places. So, you know, people say, oh, Peshaw, you know, he's the puppet master for this nefarious thing. There's absolutely no evidence for any of that. So it's interesting too, because I know one thing we have to talk about is this term conspiracy theory, right? Because I, I know that some people have called uh, Family of Secrets a, a, a conspiracy book. Uh, there's people, you know, Alex Jones is obviously dealing with sort of the conspiracy theory world. What do you think of this term conspiracy theory and the ways it's used both in, you know, rightfully so in, in some cases, but also how it's been misused and abused at times? Yeah, well, the the problem is that a conspiracy is a legitimate term. It's a legal term. It is applied uh, respectfully 
on a daily basis in courts throughout the land, uh, people are indicted for and convicted of conspiracy, conspiracy, car theft, murder, uh, financial conspiracy, all kinds of things. So conspiracy is not anything uh, that should be associated with anything um, uh, uh, anything that is uh, on its face uh, less than acceptable. And then the term theory is also uh, a neutral term, which is used to explain how we come to understand things. So the term conspiracy theory really should be uh, theories about how conspiracies work. Now, if we agree that conspiracies do exist and the courts seem to believe they do, then a conspiracy theory would actually be, here's how these 10 people uh, built this, uh, the, you know, the, these uh, citizens of their life savings. Here's how I think that went down. That would be the proper use of the term conspiracy theory, okay? But when you start conflating that with people who have absolutely no rigor, no science, no experience, no qualifications, and they're just jumping to wild conclusions uh, based on some irrational, uh, deeply emotional need that they have for some kind of uh, closure, uh, how can you lump those together? You know, you have you have scientists who are trying to come up with theories of how things work, you know, and so we we have to find a way to 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 destroy that term now, unfortunately, uh, because it, it originally was was a useful term, and now we have to destroy it. The same thing, unfortunately, with the term deep state, which uh, we use on our website, because we're trying to take it back. Because the term deep state originally was a legitimate political science term originated in Turkey, and it was taught at universities. The idea was uh, just like you have the uh, the uh, uh, the four estates, or you can say the five estates. Uh, you also had different aspects of the state, right? You had the uh, uh, you had the bureaucracy, you had the judiciary, you had the um, uh, all of these different uh, elements and entities and wings. And I think the notion of the deep state was a kind of consensus building informal apparatus among people with a similar worldview. And I think that exists in many institutions. I think it historically very much existed in government, probably existed more in government uh, in the period that Family of Secrets covers, perhaps than now, when people with, from a particular social class uh, and typically an Ivy League background uh, from a relatively small circle of people dominated many of these top positions and many of these mid-level positions in the State Department, the CIA and the Federal Reserve and what had you. They all knew each other. Yeah, there was a mindset there. There was a kind of a deep state and those people could meet at country clubs uh, or, or weddings or whatever and chat and agree that they felt a, a particular course of action was better than another or a particular individual was problematic, maybe needed to be removed, whether it was Fidel Castro or, or somebody in the United States. And so this is not kookery to acknowledge these kinds of ways in which people think and communicate and deliberate and maybe agree on action. There's nothing kooky about it. But the uh, establishment media has very irresponsibly latched onto this term uh, in, in such a way that if it, if it is applied, to a serious scholar or journalist or educator, they have no defense. 
how it's too hard to try to explain that we have nothing to do with somebody who uh, who said that those were actors uh, at, at San Diego. We have nothing to do with them. But that term kind of smears all with the same brush. Just a, a few more brief uh, points here. How do we sort of thread the needle uh, between, you know, actually dealing with you know, critical issues and, and looking at issues in a way where we can be critical of the establishment without, you know, having our, our brains fall out of our ears and becoming like, you know, these QAnon type uh, figures. How, how do we thread the needle between, you know, skepticism uh, of, of the establishment and, and, you know, the other side of this, which is like the lunatic fringe sort of Pizzagate type uh, lunacy out there? Yeah, I mean... In, in some ways, I do blame people who fall into those things. And in some ways, I don't, because I think that if the uh, professional media could find a way to really look into things uh, agnostically, just kind of look into everything that looks weird, um, the public, see, most of the people in the public have no way to investigate these things. So they say, I researched it. Well, how did you research it? You know, you, you typed some word into a search engine and something popped up and you read it. I mean, that's not really research, you know? So if you read something or you get a newsletter from, you know, Bobby Kennedy Jr. saying the vaccines are dangerous or something, I mean, is that research? Is that, no, it's not. And so, um, the true journalist is agnostic about all these things. Well, are vaccines good or bad? How many people have died as a result of getting a vaccine versus not getting a vaccine? I mean, there's nothing else there except to do the work, to do the hard work. And, you know, this is this is the heavy burden that we took on when we started Who, What, Why, which was we would love to do that hard work. You know, now the problem is we don't have the resources to do it. You you need to find uh, particular individuals who really have the temperament, the skill set to do this work, the training and the education. It's not a big group of people. And then most of those people need to make a living. So then you got to have some way to pay them. So this is a very difficult quandary uh, that we are in. Uh, I think that society is in because there simply is no existing mechanism to fairly investigate the big questions that people have. But if there were, uh, then I think a lot of these people who latch on to loony things would say, oh, okay, I'm not going to latch on to that because I've been persuaded by this fair-minded journalist who looked into it that this is this other thing is, in fact, the real story. If you could, and I know we've sort of been talking about it this whole time here, but just to put a fine point on it, at the end of the article, you write, um, in a way, Alex Jones, the brand, was a product of the failures of establishment media. He made his name in part by noisily butchering truths that the established media had quietly gassed. If American news outlets did their job to the fullest, most fearless extent, he couldn't have existed. Uh, could you talk about like the examples you see where uh, media fillings have led to the proliferation of these sort of Alex Jones figures? I mean, I think we sort of got at that a little bit with... Um, with the issue of the Iraq war, but are there any other examples you would give? Well, there's examples almost every day. I mean, I mentioned Jeffrey Epstein. I mean, the second, you know, I mean, many journalists I know who are mainstream, you know, establishment journalists privately said to me, oh, come on, that guy was whacked, you know? And I said, well, I didn't see that on your network. And they're like, yeah, there's no way, you know, we're not doing that. 
So they just admit that they can't do it. Now, of course, I, I used to go on, I used to be on journalism panels. And when I was on the panel, there were always these people from these big premier journalism brands. And they all to a person say, no one has ever told me not to write something. Uh, well, technically, that's probably true. That's not how it works. You just know not to write it uh, because you know that they're going to kill it. You know, and so, uh, you know, whether it's Epstein, I mean, anything you look at, you know, it sounds weird. I mean, I, I just see stuff in the news. I wrote about uh, Shinzo Abe, the, uh, uh, you know, ja former Japanese prime minister and his strange death. I was what I was interested there was the uh, what they say in Latin, uh, key bono, who benefits. I mean, his death immediately transformed uh, Japanese policy in a way that has a profound effect on the world. Uh, so, you know, you've got to look at that and say, uh, yes, it might have just been this unhinged individual, but it might not have been. And, you know, I like to say, you know, I mean, I actually went to Columbia Journalism School. I like to say I went to the Colombo School of Journalism, which was uh, Peter Falk as the private eye, who is, sorry, is the police detective who uh, just kind of thinks for himself. And he's kind of like, hmm, things don't add up here, you know? So I, I just think to be a journalist, you really should not have too much of an opinion going into things. When you hear, you know, whatever, Ivana, uh, Ivana Trump fell down the stairs, you know, I don't know, why was nobody else there if she had uh, all these, you know, medical ailments? Uh, and then he buried her at the his country club. I mean, it's not, it's his ex-wife who, he didn't get along with very well. I mean, it's just, it's all strange, you know, and at a minimum, people have the right to wonder about these things and people have a right to expect that somebody hopefully would look into it. As I say, the structural problem is very simply that the media really cannot look into almost any of these hot stories. They just cannot do it. In closing, you know, Alex Jones just lost that lawsuit um, with with the Sandy Hook parents. Uh, and I, I'm just curious, since this is a hot topic, uh, maybe you could talk about the reactions you've had uh, to the initial piece you wrote, Who Made Alex Jones? And I know you've written uh, these sort of Alex Jones diaries um, pieces now. So what has the reaction been like to the initial piece and, and whatnot? Yeah, the reaction has been overwhelmingly positive, but I want to say that you know, that may be a self-selected group, the people who want to hear what I have to say, the people who have subscribed to that. Um, I have no idea what uh, other people who uh, are out there in the world think of it, so I can't really tell you. I do think there are a lot of people who are um, in denial about the evil that exists on a temporal level in the world uh, it's upsetting to them. They want to believe that the United States is great and good and that, uh, uh, you know, MSNBC provides them with all the answers and uh, that, you know, if, if a president that, that they think is a decent person is president, then everything is fine. Um, they're unsettled uh, by all of these kinds of things. And they're unsettled by, they're unsettled by the, uh, the complexity that, uh, and the nuance that I am trying to introduce. Um, and and I, I know about that. I mean, I got a note the other day from somebody who I uh, care about, who's, who cares about me and is very concerned that I'm mentioning his name at all. Uh, and he's saying, don't even mention his name. But you know, I, I think we got to mention everybody's name. That's what we're supposed to do in news, supposed to mention everybody's name. I mean, uh, he doesn't like Trump either, but he sure mentions Trump's name all the time. So I think, you know, Alex Jones was a major figure in our culture. 
and he was a major figure in shaping people's perceptions. And I think we need to take a hard look at uh, him, how he came to have the kind of power he did and how he ended up uh, falling as far as he did. Also, uh, just out of curiosity, when you're trying to explain to people how certain news stories may not get out there or how uh, a journalist may just decide, hey, I'm not going to cover that. It's too much of a headache. Uh, how, how do you explain these issues to people? Because, you know, I don't think it's as simple as uh, there, there's like some cabal at the top saying, oh, you're not allowed to report yeah. that story. I think it's closer to maybe uh, the sort of type of criticism that Noam Chomsky has made, for instance, of corporate media. But how how do you explain uh, that in a nutshell uh, yeah, to people that I, are I new to the issue? I differ. I differ with Noam because I think it's less a class analysis than it is human nature. And what I mean by that is most of us are not looking for trouble. And so we're trying to understand what our acceptable role is and how our children and our families and our neighbors and our employers view us and want to view us. And so uh, when you're talking about cutting totally against the pack, you have to think long and hard about whether you can do it and how to do it. This is really the main calculation I think all journalists face. And I think most journalists are good. I think they're really in there for the right reason. They're trying to good, do good work. They're trying to figure out how do I do this? And if, if you look at the, uh, 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 at the um, Harvey Weinstein story, you know, that was sort of the same thing. I mean, people had heard various bad things about him for many, many years, and somehow the stories didn't come out. Was that a cabal? No. Was that a conspiracy? No. It was uh, people being worried about being first and 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 going after this powerful figure with the, with the risk that it would blow up in their faces. And so those of us who uh, uh, make a calculation and say, all right, you know, I'll take the incoming fire, which I have done now for what, 15, 20 years of my life. Uh, you know, you make that calculation. Hopefully you make it with your eyes open and you know, there's going to be some uh, harmful consequences. I mean, I, uh, to some extent, like anybody else in journalism who went their own way, have faced a certain amount of ostracism uh, because, uh, you know, they just say, you know, this is where my bread is buttered and it's easier to attack or criticize this person uh, than it is to acknowledge that he's doing important work and that I really should be doing that kind of work myself. Well, I want to thank you again, Russ Baker. Uh, everyone can go to who, what, why dot org. And also, uh, if you if you want, can you plug your Substack? Yeah, the Substack is called Going Deep with Russ Baker. And I think you could just Google it probably. I could never don't understand exactly how Substack works, but I think you can just find it. And then the book I've been talking about, of course, is called Family of Secrets. Uh, it's actually, by the way, despite the uh, media blockade of that book, it's been out about a dozen years and it's selling really briskly, has been selling really briskly all these years because people are saying, my God, this is a piece of American history we've never been taught. So I'm really happy about that. And I guess to some extent, we, we owe that to people like Jeff Bezos, who you know are looking to make money however they can. And they, they so far provided a platform where, whatever, in a way, you could say Jeff Bezos is a little like Alex Jones was. You know, he's, there's a platform and there's stuff and you decide whether it's kooky or it's solid. Thank you again, Russ Baker. Thank you. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation 
with Russ Baker. Please be sure to check out the work he is doing over at whowhatwhy.org. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.